Welcome to Mind the Skills Gap, where we talk about how L&D teams can take people from knowing to doing. In this episode, I speak to Miriam Nealon about how to spread the ripples for evidence-based learning in a global giant like Novartis, and why she's sometimes sceptical about neuroscience in L&D. I'm Stella Collins, a neuroscience for learning geek and chief learning officer at Stella Labs. Watch out, Skills Gap. We're coming for you. So Miriam is currently Head of Global uh, Learning Design and Learning Sciences at Novartis. She's got more than 15 years of industry experience. She's worked in many, many different companies. Um, currently, I think you're responsible for global learning design strategy and plan. And I'm kind of curious what that really means. Um, I think it's her mission that's the most interesting, which is to build learning design capability across organizations. Um, she's a huge advocate for evidence, evidence-informed, I think you call it, evidence-informed practices to learning and has a, a great blog with uh, Paul Kirshner on uh, three three-star learning experiences. And they have a very, very good book that I recommend to everybody and regularly it sits on my bookshelf and I open it up regularly to check things in it on evidence-informed learning design. She presents about her work regularly, conferences all over the world, and she's an amazing advocate for evidence-informed learning and a very strong critic of those who perhaps are purporting to do things that Miriam doesn't think fit in her pattern. So, um, Miriam, welcome to the, the podcast. It's really great to have you on here today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Um, perhaps you can tell us a little bit, first of all, about, you know, how you got to where you are, how you got to your senior role in L&D. Yeah, so I've always been uh, really interested in how the brain works, as in how how it processes things. So how it started was... I actually started studying uh, Dutch language and literature, and then my master's was in psycholinguistics. So that was around, you know, how people process uh, language. And um, I got really interested in uh, aphasia. And then I thought, okay, this is great. You know, it's uh, theoretically and, and everything uh, very interesting. And But then I thought, okay, now I would like to work with people, you know, uh, who suffer from aphasia or had a stroke or whatever. So then um, I had to do a bachelor's after my master's in speech therapy because in the Netherlands, there was no other way to become uh, a speech therapist. Um, so that's what I did. And uh, I never ended up working with uh, people with aphasia. <laughs> what, what you might not know, Miriam, is I also did a master's in speech therapy. Oh, really? <laughs> but never ended up working with people in that field either. <laughs> no, I did work as a speech therapist for five years, but I worked with children with uh, neurological uh, disorders and, you know, having communication and, and speech and language problems because of it. Uh, so I did that for five years and I liked a lot of it, but I didn't really like the 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 treatment side of it. So I liked the analysis and the planning and, and all that, but I didn't really like the therapy itself. And one of my biggest um, challenges at the time was that speech therapy was not very evidence informed. So I've always had that drive that, you know, I was looking for the evidence and why we're doing things. Then I did some kind of 
coaching path and because I thought I wanted to be an academic at that point but um, all the tests that I did showed that that might not be the best choice for my career so anyway after a long thought I ended up studying learning sciences and I was very lucky because I was uh, dating my now, now husband at the time and he said why don't you just quit your job you know we go to Mexico I'll work uh, you can do your master's, you know, and I was like, oh, this guy's great. Oh, nice. <laughs> so, yeah, so I did my master's. And then uh, while I was doing my master's, I moved to the U.S. and um, I started doing internships in instructional design because one of the professors at the Open University in the Netherlands, she recommended, uh, her name is Olga Forsova, and she recommended, she said, if you're in the US, you know what, you need to make sure you learn like altering tools and stuff, because otherwise you can never get a job like as an instructional designer. So I started to do internships while I was studying. And then slowly kind of like I moved from instructional designer doing a lot of e-learning stuff to more like senior instructional designers, more like leading projects. And I worked for, when I moved to Ireland, I, I got more strategic roles as a contractor. And I worked for Google for a year. Um, and then I worked for like about three years for an applied research center called the Learnabate Center in Dublin. And there, you know, that was really a really nice sweet spot for me because I could do a lot of research, yet it had to be in a practical way. And I was still working with real clients and so it was still quite, you know, practical. And then I moved to Accenture, where I was more like a, a, in a learning a design advisory role, more like overseeing multiple projects. And then after a couple of years, I moved to Novartis. Just so this is my first global, global role, as in I've had global roles before, but this is, you know, where my remit is to change things at a global level, which is quite a challenge at a company <laughs> with like 130,000 people. It's a massive, massive organization, isn't it? And yeah. throughout this journey, were you always trying to bring in this evidence-informed oh, yeah. practice? Yeah. Yeah, I've always been interested uh, in, in doing that. Although I must admit, about 10 years ago, I, I was very bought into 70-20-10 and that stuff. And I, I thought at the time, I, I believe that adults were very good at self-directed learning. And so I've had my, you know, I've, I've, and I'm sure I have gaps now, you know, you never know everything. And the more you know, the more you realize you don't yeah. know. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, but it was mostly when I started working with Paul on the blog that I really, so we've had that blog for about six years now, I think. Yeah. Combination of my work at, at the Lutterweight Center and my work with Paul have, have really sparked. I've always been curious, how, how did you and Paul come to write a blog together, meet, come to, to write a blog together? Well, our, our versions are, uh, are different. <laughs> but Paul has a different version of this than I do. But my story is that I followed him on Twitter. He was one of the professors at the Open University in the Netherlands. Um, he, I, I, he never was my professor, but I, I knew his name and I read 10 Steps of Complex Learning, because that was part of the master's. So I was familiar with his name. So I followed him on Twitter. And at some point, I remember, this is what I remember. I said to him, why are you not like tweeting and writing more in English? Because I feel your work needs to spread like more widely. And, and he said, well, I don't have time to do that. 
would you like to translate my work? And I thought, well, why the hell would I do that? <laughs> What's in it for me? But then I thought about it and I thought, well, you know, this, uh, this guy is fantastic and I can learn loads from him. So what if I start this translating his work, but then at the same time, you know, I can start initiating blogs and he can kind of give me feedback. So it kind of became like this partnership. And we just basically Skyped one day uh, six years ago and we said, well, we just give it a go. And we gave it a go and we're still going. So Okay, that's great. That's right. Yes, because, you know, I read it regularly. But um, yes, I've, I've always wondered how you came came upon, upon each other. So was there something that very specific that made you want to adopt an evidence-informed approach? It was just that I noticed that people had such strong beliefs because I did my master's, right? So I had, I had quite a solid foundation of the research that is out there and 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 the foundations of it and and learning design theory and and all that stuff and learning learning theory and i just noticed that people didn't know that it even existed and that we made a lot of decisions based on what we believe or what we prefer or just the language kind of like you know i was like something is is missing here and this is not this is not a professional practice as such, yeah. you know. So I can I remember I used to be that. in um, sessions where people would bring up the Morabian myth because I was often working in the kind of communication area and people would bring up the Morabian myth as if it was absolutely, you know, 100% true. And you only had to ask them very simple questions to sort of say, well, you know, if if it's and I'm not even going to repeat it because I think you know, there's a danger in repeating it that people will hear it again. Um, but, you know, you could ask some simple questions that would make it clearly obvious that, it couldn't possibly be true. The piece of research was a valid piece of research, but the extension of that research yeah. to all communication was utterly ridiculous. And yet people were, and, and still, you know, you still see it written. You still, And I kind of made it my mission at one point, if I was in a session, to actually, you know, raise address. the question and address it, which was very scary thing to do initially yeah. you get kind of more used to it so yeah I no longer find it scary but I find it <laughs> frustrating sometimes so what's the what's the hardest thing about adopting an evidence-informed approach for me is that it just eats up a lot of my energy you know like yeah yeah you just need to read a lot and compare a lot and also be open to being challenged which is exhausting sometimes you know then I see something that challenges my thinking I'm like oh now I have to read that thing as well you know like that's sometimes <laughs> how it feels it can just be quite overwhelming because there's there is of course a lot of research out there and you can't read it all at least I don't have the time to do so so yeah to kind of make that selection and and also to to kind of you know, find some focus because I sometimes I'm at risk personally that I see I start something and a topic and then I see something else and, you know, and then I start reading that. And then in the end, nothing really happens with it because I'm doing too many things at the same time. Also, of course, to find a way to translate then what you read to practice and be careful with that because nothing works all the time, you know, just to kind of know when to when it might make sense to, to implement it. I mean, influencing stakeholders and peers is definitely a challenge. Although I must say that more and more people seem to be open to it and, and interested. I do see a shift there. And then choosing your battles, which I'm terrible at. <laughs> you want to battle everything you see. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I've been reflecting on that 
a while ago, but I can't really find the answer why I seem to have a passion for battling sometimes. Excuse this interruption. At Stella Labs, we help you build business critical skills, not just knowledge. Add the missing pieces to your learning journeys to take people from knowing to doing. Want to know more? Visit stellalabs.eu to learn more. Now, back to the episode. So you've said that, you know, there's a challenge and there's very much that challenge about picking your battles and, and, you know, knowing when you should be challenging and knowing maybe when it's okay just to let somebody else do it, perhaps. (laughs) Um, What's good about it? What what do you find kind of either easy or, you know, the, the most rewarding thing? For me, the most rewarding thing is when through conversations with stakeholders or peers that when when they kind of start to see, you know, why I'm saying what I'm saying and and how that then impacts on practice and when they kind of go, when that light bulb moment happens, when they go, oh, okay, yeah, so then we need to focus on this and not on this. Because often in my experience, it is not so much that people do things wrong necessarily it's just that they they focus in the wrong angle and then if you can have that conversation and say okay but let's take a step back and really think about what people need to achieve here then what is important in that specific context because people at least in my experience like uh, people in learning have a tendency to throw things in like a given you know oh yeah, we need social learning. Okay, but why? You know, why? Well, because it's it's almost it's almost like it's almost it's always better than than individual learning. Well, no, it's not. Like it really depends, right? Yeah. So we seem to have these beliefs or these strong like things like gamification or so we focus on these things like fairly quickly and we jump on them and then if if I'm able to say okay, but let's take a step back and really think about you know what do people need. What do they need to learn? How, if we break that down, what kind of components does that have? And and what do people need for these specific components to to learn that stuff? Then then what do we end up with? And then if they go, oh yeah, okay, yeah, that kind of changes things. And also, I, I recently had like an experience with a stakeholder at at Novartis where I was able to kind of show them by visualizing what learners need to kind of pivot their thinking from the training focus to more like the capability building focus, where they really think about the end point, like, okay, we're not training people for training's sake, we're training people so that they can change something so while doing do their something. job. Yeah. So to me, those are the moments where I'm like, yes, this is why I'm doing it. Because in the end, yes, I'm very passionate about changing practice, but also about making sure that people have what they need to yeah. do their jobs well, better, have a job in the future, all that type of stuff. So yeah. that to me, yeah, when when I'm successful by explaining the rationale and, and why and people go, oh, OK, yeah, I've never thought about it that way or whatever, then that makes me happy. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really important. I, I think one of the reasons L&D people jump on these new ideas is we're quite open to new ideas, which is great. But it's like we kind of throw away all the old ideas. When when a new one comes up, it's like gamification is going to fix everything. We're always looking for the, the holy grail. 
and and it's kind of ridiculous to think there is a holy grail there isn't one there's never going to be one solution because it as you're saying it completely depends on who's learning what they're learning when they're learning why they're learning you know all those questions need to be asked and one of the things that frustrates me is is the fact there's an enormous emphasis on kind of content and knowledge which is you know we need content and knowledge it's fine but that's not enough to have somebody as you say do their job become better better skilled better uh, you know better colleagues at work better able to to you know develop their organization and develop the people with their organization and i think it's that kind of it's like learning what is learning yeah and i think a lot of people don't really know what learning is yeah and i think also we're not very good at breaking this down right in in the different types of needs we have in organizations and what it takes like when we think about informal learning super important but what what does it take right well that takes a certain type of structure a certain type of culture you know good managers that are able to support like community like breaking silos blah 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 all that stuff but we have a tendency to focus on mostly you know, scalable is now really hot in heaven. We need to scale. We need to scale. Well, maybe some things, but but maybe we can also just not do a lot of these things that we think we need to scale, right? Because then you end up with, this is my opinion, and I don't have any evidence apart from how people learn, which is maybe quite enough, but quite an important piece of evidence. Yeah, because, I think. because I feel that 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 we, you know, what you're saying, like we we focus a lot of like content libraries and content curation, and then we give people all this content, and then they need to figure out which content is relevant to them and how it applies to their. I'm like, how is this useful to people? Like, it's so overwhelming for people, and 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 then if they don't succeed, then it's their fault because we gave them everything they needed and like can we not just stop a lot of things that we're doing and only focus on the things that really require like thoughtful design you know really supporting people doing their jobs better and then the other part can be how can we now put other structures in place to support people to do the informal learning bit I think if we would do these two things well I I think we would be pretty successful and impactful. And I think that informal learning thing is becoming such a a thing at the moment. So many organisations we speak to say, you know, we want self-directed learners. We want learners who can... Yeah, but people don't realise what it takes. No, it's... Yeah, you need to... A, you need to know what learning is like. As a self-directed learner or a self-paced learner, you need to know what learning means. You need to know that it's not just going to a content labour and watching a whole pile of videos. I mean, the way I always explain to people is can you ride a bike simply by watching a video? And they always say, well, no. And and it's the same as any other kind of skill or expertise you need at work. You can't do it simply by having the information about it. You need you need guidance and support and structure and frameworks. And, and I think people don't realise that self-directed learning is not an activity, right? Self-directed learning is the front-end process, setting your goal, figuring out what your learning process needs to be, figuring out what activities you need to tackle, how to prioritize these activities, how you can find the support to do these activities well, you know, set up your feedback structure to get the feedback that you need, track your progress. Man, that is quite... That's that's a skill in itself. (laughs) Yes, yes, (laughs) indeed. Now, one of the things I know we've kind of um, we've been we've sometimes been pitted against each other, I think, in in conferences and things is the idea of, you know, you appear to say that you you don't believe neuroscience has any value for 
L&D. I know it's more subtle than that, um, but I'd like you to explain a little bit more about your stance there and, and perhaps, you know, what's your definition of neuroscience? Because I think that's probably where our biggest difference is. Yeah. So uh, my definition is that it's the field that um, study the structure and function of the brain. And I think it's a, I think neuroscience is a bit of an umbrella term in the way that you know, you can study the brain at different levels, right? Molecular, how do you pronounce that in English? Molecular, yeah. Molecular, cellular, like, I don't know. But, and then how these parts work, to, you know, how these things work together. But to me, it is fairly abstract, as in, yeah, studying the brain, like chemical, cellular. So it's that kind of real, the, the really kind of deep scientific stuff that, you know, you need a degree in physiology yeah. or chemistry or biology or well, neuroscience or in neuroscience <laughs> as well yes. but I remember like to me there are like those subtleties are 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 important because I remember when we were at learning technologies uh, when was it February that Etiel uh, Drawer was there and he explicitly said I am not a neuroscientist mm -hmm. I am a yeah. cognitive neuroscientist and that is a really important distinction yes. because that is more about you know the brain versus the mind and how how what we understand about the brain and how we then like think that that is completely different levels and yes a cognitive scientist then looks at both but yeah that's how i think about neuroscience it's more about the brain the actual the brain and how it works and and for me i'm now really interested in not just the brain but how it connects with our bodies so the science of how our brains and bodies are so well connected you know, you, we're not just brains floating around in jars. We're humans no, with many complex yeah. physiological and biological needs. But I suppose I'm st I'm still curious as to why you jump on it so much. Because, you know, for, for a lot of people, I think it's an interesting entry point. It helps them get interested in the science of learning. To me, this is this is really important because I am interested in it as well. I think it's super fascinating. I, I'll give one example. I actually wrote it down. There was... Imagine a post where somebody explains that, and here it comes, dopaminergic neurons respond not only to rewards, but also to things that are novel and surprising. Okay, that's interesting, right? Now, the next thing is that this person says, implies that this can then inform how we design for learning. And this is the type of leaping that I constantly see when people talk about chemical neuron stuff, transmitters, whatever, and then make a jump to, oh, this is so interesting, and then start to talk about behavior, or even worse, how we then should design for things. And that, to me, is not acceptable. And that's what I see. Like, yeah. the whole yeah. dopamine thing is crazy. It's, it's getting out of hand. Dopamine I remember when I interviewed Daniel Ansari for our book when he said dopamine is just a neurotransmitter. That's all it is. It is a, a, a value-free neurotransmitter. Yes, it's neither good nor bad. Exactly. Yes. But that's not how the people who are so passionate about neuroscience in learning talk about it. Yeah. And, and so I have not seen anything coming out of it that I'm like, okay, this is, I mean, I'm sure I've overlooked things. But to me, the most problematic part is, and and 
And what I really honestly don't understand is we have our own science. It's called the learning sciences. <laughs> and it's an interdisciplinary field. And it's focused on the question, how do people learn? How do we need to design to help people learn? What do we need to do to support people to learn? That's we have our field has our own science and it's an inter interdisciplinary field. It has it it uses things. It uses from neuroscience. We have our own field. Why would we focus on another field? Yeah. It's like being a data scientist and then focusing on statistics. Like, why would you do that? I don't understand. So maybe you can answer that because you do it. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I'm I'm obviously very, very interested in neuroscience, but I think AI define it more broadly. So for me, it is the new, and I'm talking about the neuroscience of learning, but I'm talking really about the science of learning. And the reason my book was called Neuroscience for Learning was because the, or the publishing company said that would sell better. So I wanted to call it the psychology of learning. I wanted to call it the psychology of learning. How, having said that, oh, you I, would, and you did. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think it's subtitled the psychology of learning. Having said that, I'm completely, you know, fascinated by how our brain does work and understanding how that connects to the learning process and how that connects to cognitive psychology and social psychology and all those pieces. Um, totally get the whole thing about, you know, we, we tend to label, you know, dopamine as, as good and neuroadrenaline as, as maybe bad because it makes us feel tense. But actually, all those things are completely, yeah, we can't say they're good or bad. We need them in order to function as humans. And sometimes, you know, too much dopamine is really bad for you and too little dopamine is really not good for you. Dopamine but not in the same when you're scared. So, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and too much also, dopamine, yeah. you end up being schizophrenic, you know, um, <laughs> or you have schizophrenic tendencies. Uh, and I think that the whole complexity of all those neurotransmitters and the way they work, you know, there is so much more to learn about them that I am utterly fascinated in. But I, I, I what I suppose I am interested or where it comes as interest for me is I find it's quite a nice way for people to start to understand themselves because everybody has a brain and they like to know a little bit about their brain. The challenge becomes when it becomes, as you say, overgeneralized. It goes from being, you know, this is a fact about your brain to, and this means X, Y, yes. and Z. That is a really good point. I think two points that you've made that I think kind of like nail it for me. One is the selling. I think somehow neuroscience sells better than the learning sciences. Yeah. And I don't know why, but probably because people. Uh, anyway, I don't I think know. Probably I think. because people see it as people understand it less. So it's seen as more scientific, more clever, mm -hmm. because people actually it's it's much more complex or it, you, you need to be more of a specialist in it, specifically in neuroscience itself. Yeah, it's, and there's not really a way to understand it as a as a layman. I no, think. no, so. you really need to have a really strong scientific background. I don't think there's anything wrong with like the second bit that you were saying, right? If if people find it interesting and understand a little bit better around why we might be, you know, or behave or respond or whatever, that of course there's nothing wrong with that. Um, that's that's perfectly fine. I just think that that's about the level that we're at, you know, like it's more like fun facts mm -hmm. type stuff. I mean, I, I remember uh, one one talk that you gave uh, at Learning Technologies once where you explained, you know, why sleep is so important for learning. And, and that is interesting, right? It's interesting. But and and so and that's it for me. Oh, that's interesting. 
but it doesn't really help us. I mean, that maybe helps a little bit in the sense that when I you think that's one that like, can help. Yeah. Yeah, but not for our practice that much. That's what I'm trying to say. More for people themselves to manage their own. I think for me, for me, it did influence my, that one in particular did influence my practice to some degree, along with a whole pile of other things. So I really recognize that, you know, if you split learning up into, I mean, it, there's many other reasons why you should, but you split learning into chunks, bite-sized pieces and allow people to sleep on it before they then come back to it again the next day or a couple of days later. That is more effective than trying to cram everything into their brains all at once in one day. Sleep is part of that. That's not the only reason. But I actually think that is a really good reason to start to split learning into pieces. And it's a really easy way to explain it to people. This is why we should split learning into pieces, because if you don't sleep, you really won't learn anything. But to what extent did we need the neuroscientific explanation for that? You know, so again, to me, it goes back to, OK, it's interesting. I'm not denying I'm interested in it. I'm just I constantly think, where should we focus our attention? And of course, there is this part. And, and I think you're better in that than I am about, you know, how to sell things to people so that they it's more easy for them to accept or to buy into that. And I think I am I, I am I just think a bit differently in the sense that I think, yeah, okay, but uh, okay, fine. That's that's to me the bucket. Okay, nice to know, interesting for the sake of interesting. And that's fine with me. There's nothing wrong with that. It's great. People can be interested in loads of things. Um, and then there's the part of, okay, but what do we really need to focus on to change our practice? So yeah. I think that to me is the kind of the distinction that I that I make. Just to ad address that specific one, for me, seeing how sleep, seeing how our brains actually function during sleep, that actually is, that is the convincer for me. Mm. So if, if, you know, for years, our mums always and our grannies always said to us, you need to sleep, it's good for you. Yeah. That was just, you know, that was just what my granny said. But, you know, when you can actually understand what's physically going on in the brain during sleep, it's like, OK, that really is why we need to sleep. So for yeah. me, it's it's the convincer. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is the evidence that proves we do need to sleep. So that's that's kind of an, an interesting. That's a good place to be to perhaps be thinking about why, and, and yeah. it may depend on your level of scientific inquiry or where you are in in your learning. You know, I knowledge about true. the brain yeah. and learning as to to what you need. So for me, I need those convincers that say somebody's actually seen the the the, the transmission of of uh, memories from the hippocampus into other parts of the brain during that sleep period that doesn't seem to happen in other times of your daily life. That yeah. for me is the convincer that we really do need sleep. So it, it probably depends where, yeah, where you are in your, your journey. Yeah. And, and, you know, cause I also remember when I was inter interviewing uh, Daniel Ansari that, that he was saying, well, you know, like on one hand, it's okay that people use neuroscience to sell things, you know, if it's for good, reason or for a good cause I still have problems with that in the sense that I'm like why do we need to call something that it's not <laughs> why we have we have a name for it you know but yeah I think also, one of the yeah I think and that's what we do in learning a lot I think like we want to use terms because somehow people need to, I just think it, it just says so much about our field that we constantly it's another bandwagon things. isn't it it is like we need we constantly are looking for these shiny things that we can then and and i remember having a conversation with somebody about worked examples 
and 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 this person said, I I think you should change the term because that's not a term that will resonate with people. I'm like, well, I'm sorry, but this is what it's called, and it's <laughs> been there for 40 years and it's been researched. This is what it's called. Why would I need to call it something else? This is. That's, yeah. that's a really interesting question, Miriam, and one that we debate regularly. And shall we call things things that the genuine scientific name or shall we call it something that we think our clients are going to understand? And I think that's that's a question that I'm sure many organisations have. You know, do we use the internal jargon name or, or you know, the scientific jargon name? It way, you know, but it feels like jargon. And do we teach our clients that or do we have to go with the words that they're already using in order to get Access. And I kind of think we sometimes need to work with the words they use in order to introduce them to the more complex stuff. Otherwise, you're putting up yeah. barriers. This is yeah, yes, at, but at the same time, I think the fact that we that we are not really a professional field is the is one of the reasons why we have mm. to do this. You know, like because it also causes confusion, right? It eats Indeed. up a lot of our energy. We need to really understand like how other people, what language they use, and how we can then like tweak our language to. And, and I know that's all political and it's all important and and all that, but I think it's kind of like a shame because it also causes a lot of confusion in the sense that in one division they might call it this, and then in another division. They might call it that. So then we need to work on alignment between divisions because, you know, otherwise nobody understands. And it just becomes all so messy. Like, yeah, <laughs> that's a whole that's a whole new conversation that we'll yeah, have to have. At some point. <laughs> that's more like the evidence of yeah. craziness of yeah. corporate or whatever. And, and, yeah, corporate communication. <laughs> So have you got any any kind of guilty secrets about evidence-based practice, you know, something you've had to change your your mind about? You've already kind of mentioned 70-20-10, perhaps yeah. you've, you've shifted on that. Is, is there kind of anything else? Yeah, and, and so you know, I constantly doubt things, by the way, but... Um... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, as I said, the idea that adults are good self-directed learners, I used to think that was the case. You know, that's also one of the reasons I did kind of believe in 70-20-10, because I thought, well, just give people stuff and they'll figure it out and that's just not true like when you look at the evidence so definitely also i recently um paul and i uh, posted a blog about learning strategies that we had posted previously about that you know we had this distinction between effective and ineffective learning strategies and and we had uh, ineffective we had like uh highlighting summarizing and and uh yeah i think highlighting some i don't remember all of them but anyway my point is that we rewrote it in because now we kind of wrote it in well it actually depends highlighting is not necessarily it's it's bad if you don't have enough like prior knowledge and if you're just like wildly highlighting things and then you know reread and then think oh i got this because then your brain you know, kind of recognize, recognizes what, it. Yeah, yeah, what you've read before, and then it thinks it it gets it, which is not enough to to learn. So I like that type of um, you know, work in the sense that I think that's also what science is, right? It's not like we have the answer and then it never changes. I actually see that a lot lately on LinkedIn, where people said. Yeah, we don't have to use the science because it constantly changes. <laughs> like, dude, <laughs> that's the point. 
<laughs> but I think that is a challenge that scientists have um, as, a, as a public perception that, you know, they, there was this kind of theory that, you know, existed and it was a theory and maybe it was well tested. But then, you know, it does. Science does change. And that's the point of science. That's the beauty. Yeah. But it can leave us like you just said, sometimes you doubt things because you think, well, I, I thought I knew that, you know, five years ago, but actually evidence has shifted. And, and now maybe I don't know as much about it yeah, or, or maybe there's something new come in say like there is no evidence because evidence constantly changes so therefore we don't have to take an evidence informed approach because nothing matters you know nobody yeah. knows and well, I'm like, well that's that's not true <laughs> that's not true because it, you know i well at least my very strong opinion is that you should use what you have now and what yes. you have the strongest evidence for now because yeah. that allows you to make better informed decisions with as much confidence as you can that you've done your due diligence you know yeah. to and then of course we need to evaluate in our in our particular context but otherwise it's so inefficient right because yeah. then we keep going with trial and error and reinventing the wheel yeah yeah um, i totally agree with you we use what we know now with the idea that, you know, this may change in the future, but right now this works for us. You know, otherwise we wouldn't have vaccines. We wouldn't yeah. have, you know, uh, digital technology. We wouldn't have any of those things. If science hadn't helped us create those things, we wouldn't have them. I've, I've told this story a number of times and it really resonated with me. I was listening to um, Higgs. Professor Higgs invented the Higgs boson. It was when they were looking at um, CERN to see whether, you know, Recently, they were checking, weren't they, whether the Higgs boson actually existed. And just before they announced the results, uh, a an interviewer asked him, you know, well, what will happen? You know, what will happen if you discover it? And he said, well, these amazing things, you know, we'll know all this. And he said, but what happens if you find there isn't one? And I think he was expecting him to say, I'll be devastated. It's my life's work ruined. He said, oh, that's even more exciting because that opens up a whole field of things that we hadn't even considered before. Yeah, so yeah. it was, you know, he was a true scientist who really got the idea that, you research and you find out and you get to where you are. And then if if the results come out differently, well, that's that's just as exciting and just as interesting. And I think that's where real science is important. I remember I had that conversation with, um, I don't know what you call it in English, with the person who did supervising of my thesis. Supervisor. Oh, supervisor, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, I had this discussion with her where I, and I, I was completely naive that way because I said, I don't understand why it's better when a study has successful results and why you never see publication of studies that completely failed. Because is that not you interesting. Know, interesting? And she said, yeah, you would think so, but it's just not how it works. And I was yeah. so disappointed by that. because That's thought, human nature, I guess, isn't it? To not want to be seen to publish a a failure. Yeah, but to me, it's like, okay, I had these hypotheses, I tested it, it turned out to not be true. Isn't that not as important to know? Absolutely. No. Yeah. 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 But scientists, unfortunately, are human too. <laughs> Miriam, you work in this enormous company right now. And I sometimes sort of imagine you sitting there in your, um, you know, your kind of little space where you are. How are you actually able to, to influence evidence-informed learning across such a, a huge global company what 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 do you do what because I think that's be really useful for lots of us you know what works and, and perhaps what doesn't work yeah I mean uh, 
it's really hard to know like to what extent things really land. So let me, you know, uh, and to really uh, change things at scale. So it's more like a, a pebble in the pond type thing. I would, I'm, I'm thinking, um, I can, I can tell you what I do. I don't know how successful uh, everything is, but because it's, it's a, it's a matter of re- learning and, and anyway, I'll tell you what I do. So what I do is I do a lot of like um, explanation around what evidence-informed learning experience design is. And I really work with like the three buckets. So the stakeholders and systems buckets, the our expertise bucket, and then the and then the science. And I think in organizations it's really important to to start with certain terminology and keep repeating it and keep repeating it everywhere in everything that you do, because that's the only way that things are gonna stick. And that people start picking up on it and, and it becomes kind of part of the, the the language. Now, the language is only one one part of it. But the other thing I do is I try to work out loud as much as possible. So really designing purposefully opportunities where we bring together like other people who are involved in learning design and really work out loud and think out loud about. So as an example, we recently... Uh, started piloting. Well, so a while ago we were piloting our LXB. It's now it's now implemented. But at the time, what I did was I designed a learning journey on worked examples on the learning experience design platform, our learning experience platform, and then brought together a group of people who went through the learning journey. So it was a bit of a meta meta thing, as in I wanted people to learn about worked examples, but I also wanted to discuss why I designed it the way I designed it. So we came together like once a week and we discussed, or once every two weeks, sat down for an hour. And every time we discussed like one phase of the of the learning journey. So we discussed, you know, what they learned, if they had any questions, but then we jumped up a level. I mean, we, we talked about the design. So that really, because to me, the rationale behind the design is something that we need to talk more about and that we need to dig into because that if we get better at that then we are able to have these conversations with our clients because i often see that learning designers or learning professionals have conversations with their stakeholders and it's very difficult for them to convince their stakeholders because they don't start at the right end of the spectrum with the conversation so they might start with uh, I think we need gamification or I think we need social learning or I think we need whatever. And then I need to convince their stakeholder. Well, I think you need to start with, OK, when we look at what people need, then that implies that they need to fix some to do something together because without it, they won't be able to achieve X. So anyway, my whole point is I'm really trying to implement that way of working. Uh, another. Um, mechanism I have for that is we do learning design jams. So because I got a lot of requests from teams across Novartis asking for consultation and feedback on design. And I couldn't like it's just too too many requests. Yeah. Yeah. So I've like put together a mechanism where we then organize a learning design jam. So I bring together again like this core group from across the organization that come together the, the client who requested it, they prepare for the for the jam. So they present a little bit on their 
project and then there's so it's like a it's a win-win right they get feedback the peers who are involved get to learn about other projects and then we use like evidence-informed learning design principles to structure the conversation so it kind of depends at what level the design is you can have quite you know high level as in like how clear are the needs and 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 whatever and to what extent do these needs really require learning so it but we also have really detailed principles like Myers multimedia principles okay let's look at this e-learning and to what extent does it meet you know these criteria so that's the way I try to work um, and one other example is that I work with one or two really key projects so you know I really partner with the business and that I need that because I need to understand what's going on a little bit and how people work. So then I provide, you know, advisory and help them improve their design. But then I also, with my team, design things out of that, like case studies, templates, methods, tools that then other people can use to improve their capabilities. Okay. So that's, so you've got four, four really strong tactics there. You've got the kind of the, the explanation, I guess that's kind of keynotes conversations yeah um, share webinars on nets with cahoots and the type yeah of stuff. okay yeah. then you've got the working out loud which is i think is hugely important for people and it's that kind of you know explaining what's going on in in your head when you're doing stuff you've got the jams where you're bringing more people together but again you're kind of you're doing that meta learning you're learning one thing but then you're learning on top of yeah. it and then yet yeah, you're actually actively working in projects because that keeps you up to date with what's really going on, but also helps people learn from you as you're working in there. That's exactly. really helpful because I think that's Teaching very practical. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. That's really, really helpful. Thank you. Okay, well, we've got a couple of minutes left. So just last of all, perhaps, if you could wave a magic wand and everyone followed evidence-informed practice, and I'm so with you here, what, what would be the three things that they could do that would have the biggest impact? Yeah, one of the biggest changes I think we need to make is that we need to spend more time unraveling the need. And what I mean, I, I and I don't even mean like the performance consulting bit. I, I do mean at the, at the level where we have decided it needs some kind of learning intervention. But I think we really need to unravel what that thing is made up of. Like, is it knowledge? If so, is it declarative knowledge? Is it procedural knowledge? And is it skills? If so, yes. Uh, if yes, then is it a simple skill? Is it a complex skill? Is it more about habit? So, and the reason is because only if we break it down that way, we know where to focus our design attention and we need to know which evidence to use. Yeah. So as, as an example, when it's the knowledge, if it's, I always get confused with the terms, like uh, the, the factual stuff, descriptive then you need to explain concepts and 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 give examples, right? If it's more procedural, well, then you might need to explain it also, but you also need to demonstrate it. Yes. And then as a solution, you probably don't necessarily need things like space practice necessarily. You might be able to get away with just performance support aids, right? It's and kind so of the, spaced repetition and things. So they actually... Well, spaced repetition knowledge. is more when you need to remember. But when it's something like a how-to, like a procedural knowledge thing that you don't really necessarily need to understand that deeply, you might be able to teach people just by providing the job aid. Again, it's nuanced. It depends. Yeah. yeah. But just, I think that way of thinking, it just doesn't happen. 
it's never really broken down that way. Like we, we talk about things at a way too abstract level. Yeah, we talk about learning at this very high level instead of asking about what is it, what is it people are learning in a very detailed way. Yeah. And, and and I think it's because people, when I talk about this, that people are worried that, you know, it's kind of like analysis paralysis, but that's not, I think if you're, if you're good enough, you can, you can relatively quickly do like a, a task analysis type of thing and, and break it down. Like, and, yeah. and even like, even if your client gives you a, a bunch of content if you can then have an initial conversation and say, okay, tell me what your people need and why, and then go through the content. I mean, yes, it takes a couple of hours, but then you can show them like, okay, this is what you told me. When I look at your content, this is what I see, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So uh, here's the gap and you yeah. need to show them. And, and usually they go, oh, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, we don't have time for that. So that, okay. But then we need to, then you need to track back and, and, and adjust your expectations. You need to compromise, right? Because mm-hmm. your people are not going to learn this if you offer them that. that so indeed. <laughs> yeah. So that I think we need, that's, that's, I think for me, that would actually be the one if we were, it would be able to do that. That's because that would change everything after it. Yeah. But then the, 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 the of course the, the million dollar question is how are people going to get that knowledge? Because I actually think that L&D is pretty okay when it comes to skills. I think the knowledge is where the gap is. Ah, that's interesting. I kind of think it's the other way around. But People people don't know all the research that's out there. I've had a, 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 a conversation recently where people said that, that everything around skills is new. And I'm like, okay, people, there are methodologies that have been around since like the 50s. Yeah, but just because so, it's been around doesn't mean people know it. Well, exactly. This yeah. is exactly yeah. my point. Yeah. We need to stand on the shoulders of giants. Yes. The other thing. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Miriam, thank you so much for what has been a really, really fascinating conversation. I think we could probably have gone on all day, but uh, I think uh, both you and I have jobs to do, and I suspect that our listeners probably have jobs too. Thank you so much. That's been really fascinating, and thank I really look for forward to our next it conversation. Really it was a nice conversation. Thank you. Great. And I look forward to seeing you again soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Mind the Skills Gap. If you liked it, hit subscribe. You can follow me, Stella Collins, on LinkedIn and find out more about how Stella Labs is tackling the skills gap at stellalabs.eu.